And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on. And now Max Verstappen is a triple world champion. His impact on Formula One is undeniable, and he's certainly among the greats. But as well as being enormously successful, is he also redefining what it is to be an F1 driver? I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to take a 360-degree look at the Verstappen phenomenon are Mark Hughes and special guest, Eric Van Horen. Well, Eric, great to have you back on the podcast again. You joined us for one last summer, also about Max Verstappen. And for those who don't know, uh, Eric Van Huren is a hugely respected Dutch F1 journalist for The Telegraph. So thanks very much for joining us. Apologies probably for my poor pronunciation of the names there. But how big a story has Max's title success been in the Netherlands over the past week or so? Well, um, the pronunciation of my name was uh, okay, Ed, so no worries. Um, I heard way... uh Way worse in the pedal. <laughs> um, no, yeah, of course, the excitement is not like it was uh, two years ago. That's quite logical. If you clinch a title like this, everyone knew it was going to happen. And um, so that takes a little bit away the excitement if it's uh, not happening in the last couple of races when you have a battle, uh, tight fight for the for the championship. But um, I think it was quite big still in the Netherlands. Uh, you can see it nowadays with um, reading numbers on the website. But... Um, of course, it's not like two years ago, but I think we have a lot of Formula One fans in the um, in our country nowadays. And uh, of course, people know you are not going to be champion in one weekend. It's um, you deserve it over a whole year. And I think uh, Verstappen showed the whole year, um, also to the people in the Netherlands, that he is the the best driver of the moment and the most uh, consistent one. So um, yeah, it's it's still quite big in the Netherlands. People are not bored yet. I think. Yeah, and I think there's going to be plenty more success for them to be celebrating. And obviously, I guess it's been a big story for six, seven, eight years, his his rise and then his his great success. And and just to put it in context, he is a megastar, isn't he, in, in the Netherlands? I've I've heard people saying he's the biggest sporting star ever. I think somebody claimed that. Is is that a fair thing? Is it absolutely Verstappen superstar in, in your part of the world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never saw that for sure for an individual sportsman. Of course, you have sometimes... A big sportsman or a sportswoman, but it's all—it's a lot of at sports who are uh, uh, very good in the Olympic sport. But then it, you have a big um, stories and uh, one in one in four years or once in two years. Uh, and now with Verstappen, it's almost every week. So that's a different and difference. Um, I think when he he entered to the Formula One in 2015, then the the Dutch national football team was not um, uh, performing really well. We missed the Euros in 16 and the World Championship in 18. So maybe that helped as well to create um, an impact like this but still the people are uh, like in last weekend in Doha and to Qatar there were hundreds of people of Dutch people of Dutch fans in the in the in the plane uh, next to me so um, that says enough so now he's a mega star and yeah people already say he's uh, on the same level as Johan Cruyff uh, Johan Cruyff um, yeah that's always difficult to compare but for sure he is a, a superstar and yeah he's already performing for this is already season nine for him in Formula One, if I'm correct. So, um, yeah, he's performing on such a high level for such a long time now. So that helps as well. There's a great thing there in pronunciation. Johan Cruyff, is that is that the right pronunciation? Yeah, I think the, we say Johan Cruyff, right. but that's very difficult, I think. So, uh, 
yeah, the Dutch language is not uh, the best language for uh, people outside the Netherlands, but uh, I think English is where uh, Johan Cruyff I uh, can understand as well. Okay, he tends to come out sort of Cruyff in English, so I'm going to try and I'm going to try and modify Cruyff. that. He he doesn't yeah, get Cruyff. mentioned much on the F1 podcast, but I'm sure there might be an occasion where we uh, where we <laughs> where we do it. And Mark, if we come to you now, as we mentioned on a recent podcast, your book Unstoppable, the ultimate biography of Max Verstappen, is out. So, what was the process of writing that like? Is he an easy subject to get to the bottom of? Well, the story's already there. It's just the, the the telling of it. You have to try and be a good divining rod in the telling of it. So you you try to enrich it with as much depth as possible, and still hopefully keeping it readable. Because you you're catering to some fans newer to the sport than others, but you're also catering to the hardcore, very knowledgeable fans. So and you. Uh, talking to those who have been around him from the earliest days right up to now, you're trying to convey what's unique about the way he was prepared for the sport, trying to explain what it is that makes one guy quicker than another. So for the process that you just asked about is the structure and tone, and you have to have an idea of both really before you start writing. And the structure is how you're going to tell the story. Is it just going to be chronological or some other way? And the tone, the voice, and the telling of it is that you've got to try and bridge those wide sample of readers um, that you're going to get, hopefully. Um, So the subject, Max Verstappen, this phenomenon, isn't complex particularly, but there's an awful lot to it. Yeah, and a driver like that's always going to be phenomenally interesting to to delve into, and hopefully we'll convey some of that in this podcast. And what we're actually going to try and do is get into the age-old argument about a driver's greatness, but we'll put it within the context of how Verstappen either has or might be in the process of redefining how an F1 driver does things, or at least a great F1 driver does things. Of course, he's got many years in F1 still to come. So it's very much based on what he's done so far and a bit of extrapolation so that the full context won't become clear until the dust settled on his career. But it allows us to break down what he does in some quite uh, quite interesting ways. And I always tend to think a measure of greatness is those drivers who not only are phenomenally successful, which clearly Max is, but those who kind of raise the bar for what a top driver has to do. So we'll start with you, Mark, because obviously the measure of success defined by weight of achievement does change over the years, number of wins. He's got three titles and 49 victories now. He could be on the trajectory that will allow him to smash all records. Uh, certainly he's capable of it. But what part do you think the raw statistics play in the measure of a driver? And, and could he rewrite those record books that Lewis Hamilton was only rewriting a few years ago? Yeah, he could do. He's very much on that trajectory. And with a, a contract that runs to the end of 28, if he continues until then, yes, very t- totally feasible. Um, what what are such statistics mean? For me, not all that much. I, I don't think for him either. I think he's genuine when he says he doesn't care about the numbers, that they are just of interest to those on the outside and have nothing to do with his own personal journey, this odyssey he's experiencing. But how much the numbers mean is a personal thing. They're, they're just as they're as important to the person looking on as that person wants them to be, really. It, it, um, maybe for him, they'll come to have an importance once he stops. Uh, but for me, um, greatness, which, and he is one of the greats, is not about some marathon slog to see who can rack the biggest numbers up, just repeating your high level over and over again. For me, it's just about the level that has reached and, and the, 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 you know, the, the level that he's, he's at. And... That level can be apparent without racking up the numbers. And, you know, one of the the greatest demonstrations of genius F1's ever seen, repeated so often as to make it obvious, won only six Grand Prix, Gilles Villeneuve. Now, his career was cut short by his death, but even had he gone on to the sort of multiple title success he was capable of, he wouldn't have been any greater than he already was. He'd just have proved it to us outsiders. And I'm guessing he had not the slightest interest in whether he proved it to the outsider or not, because he would have known what his level was. And anyone watching closely could see what it was, and it was up there with the greatest, just as Verstappen's is. But perception of often lags way behind reality when a great one comes along, and that's because of this obsession with numbers. And the greatness is obvious long before the numbers make it all tally for those who are obsessed by such things. Yeah, I'd certainly agree with that. And Eric, do you think that Max is as uninterested in the pure numbers as, as he says he is? I guess it's quite easy to say he, he loves driving and winning and... If you drive well and win, you will rack up numbers. That sort of follows from the the core thing he's doing. And and that's why it's sort of outside of that in that it's just do what you do, do things right, successful flow. Yeah, I think it is as simple as that. He's interested in only one thing and that's winning. 
and then of course if you win if you have a good car as well then yeah of course it's it's logical you are breaking records but of course he he knows all the records um out of his head so that says enough but he read about it as well but still he knows what he can achieve and maybe now he's not interested in that i can I've, i'm sure about that but maybe in 10 20 years time when he is looking back and he see, sees himself on all those uh, lists with all those big uh, great drivers then i think it will make him proud but um i agree with markets in Formula One or in every other sport, it's not only about breaking records and being in the list, but also what you achieve and how people are, are remembering you. Like if you talk about Max and one of his best races ever, I think a lot of people will think about Brazil 2016. And that was not the race he, he was winning. He won a lot of races now, but that was a race he wasn't winning, but he showed himself as a great driver. So um, I think that's even not more important, but also very important if you look at his um, uh, status in Formula One. Yeah, I think that's very, very true. And I guess if you're talking about records, you know, the record for total wins and total championships and that kind of thing will probably seem a long way off now. But then again, the rate he's going and the way he's racking them up, I mean, that number of wins, 49. Whenever I see his number of wins, it's always a bit, oh, he's certainly racking them up, isn't he? So it's almost the same thing, I guess, from the outside. Uh, but I guess that brings us to the second point, Eric, which is just about his his mindset, because Max has always had a fairly clear idea of what he wants to do outside F1 in motorsport. He does his sim racing stuff as well. So he seems very open to, to doing other things. Do you think that's an unusual mindset? Because the conventional wisdom is that to thrive in F1, you've got to be absolutely focused on it to the exclusion of absolutely everything else. But even quite early in his career, Max seemed to have a, a broader view perhaps than, than, than most drivers of, of that sort of experience. Yeah, I think it helps. Um, he has a lot of other passions. It's all motorsport related. Um, but I think he is a kind of guy when he's arriving on a track, he's really relaxed. But if he puts a helmet on, then he's really focused. And also when he's thinking about his job, he's really focused. He's not a guy who's speaking uh, for hours with engineers normally in the debrief, but he can show in a few sentences which direction he wants to go with the car, with the setup of the car. Um, but uh, when you speak with him about sim racing and that kind of thing, he's so passionate about it. And maybe that helps him as well to know, okay, when I'm out of Formula One or I have a week off, then I can um, be, uh, I can put my energy in that. So, um, And I think it's a, a good way as well that you're not only focused on Formula One 24-7, um, and now he's, he, he really wants to help younger drivers who don't have the backing maybe or the, the, the background. Um, and, and maybe he wants to, uh, or not maybe, he wants to um, get his own GT3 car in, uh, in two years' time at least and, and then have one of the drivers from the sim racing project in the, in the real car. So um, he's really passionate about it. And I think it's good for him as well when, when he takes off Formula 1, when he is retiring Formula 1, that he has something else to um, put his energy in. Yeah, it is. It is interesting that point you make about he's not too over the top in in the, the debriefs and that kind of thing. And I think Mark, one of the things that strikes me with Max, we've had this increasing complexity in terms of Formula One over the past few decades. But I think what Max seems able to do is make it quite simple. He's very good at cutting out the noise and can focus on the key elements with with great clarity and I think that's quite a big part of of his success obviously he's got phenomenal amount of ability behind the wheel but he seems to simplify something that could become all-consumingly complex and almost self-defeatingly so yeah that's right and and I think um you know compared to even compared to his dad Yoss he never got as much into the technology and the the the, the te technical aspects of Karting and cars that that Yoss uh, did, um, but he, he he he's as much into the racing as as anyone's ever been. But in, into the the stuff around it that that makes it happen, no, not not so much. He just he just takes what he needs from it and gives direction as as required. And I think maybe the the, the modern sophistication of data analysis has probably enabled that approach to to work um, better than it would have done in maybe previous eras. Um, but it, it, it makes, you know, for a, a nice um, headspace for him as well. You know, it's not, uh, he, he, can, he can be relaxed. And uh, yeah, I think to an extent, you know, you, know, you, you were asking, has he, has he changed uh, what, what an F1 driver is? I think um, he, he makes his own rules. The level of success has, has enabled him to sort of do what he, what he pleases to an extent. 
And, um, you know, the, the, these interests, as Eric said, uh, they outside of Formula One, but they're not outside of racing. They're still very much to do with racing. And um, I think he's just so into it. He, he, I once asked him if he'd ever thought of what he would do when he retired. And this was a few years ago now, but um, his, his interest, he, he said, yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a, something like a, maybe a GP2 car and, and have my own test track and, and just go around there with it and have an engineer and just black around there all day, just working on, on, my, on, on my driving. And that was his idea of retirement back then. So it's just, um, yeah, that's just, he's never had any other life outside of racing and just loves, loves this, this life. So, you know, why would he not be wanting to have a look outside of Formula One, given how much time Formula One demands of you in the, the, the calendar and all the other commitments? Yeah, and he does, Eric, seem to be a very, he seems to be quite a level-headed character. I mean, I, yeah, I know there have been occasions in the past on track where he's gone quite extreme and people have questioned that, but it does seem in everything he does, Max has got a very clear vision of what he's doing and why doesn't get too carried away. Do you think that is fundamentally his, his character and why he's able to kind of do everything in the way he does? Yeah, his father said as well last weekend after clinching the title that he is the most proud. The, the things what makes him the most proud is that Max has not not changed that much as a personality. Of course, you uh, you're maturing, but um, and I think I agree that. The first time I spoke with him was before his debut in Formula 3. So that was 2014, almost 10 years ago. Um, and I sometimes I look at that story I made back then. And if you read the quotes, it's like you speak with him now. Yeah, that, that says enough, I think. And um, he's really outspoken. He can be very critical, criticizing the calendar, that kind of things, his marketing um, stuff. So, um, yeah, I will... At this moment, I will be surprised if he will extend his career after 28, but it depends a little bit how he is, uh, how his status is in Formula One. Then, if you are in the best car at that moment, will you quit? You never know. Um, but I think that character and the way he is, and people see that as well as the camera, that he's not um, acting or something. I think the people, his fans for sure, like that as well. They see him as a down to earth guy and not as a, he is a superstar, but he's not acting like a superstar. And I think that's what people like as well. Yeah. And I think it does reflect well on him that he is willing to be a bit of a, a spokesperson, particularly for the, the sort of racing stuff in that he doesn't like sprints. He's quite happy to voice that. And there'll be plenty of fans who, who don't like it, who like to hear that happening. He doesn't kind of toe the line. So I think that's a good one. Mark, there was an interesting thing that Eric mentioned about not thinking you'll race beyond the end of the, the current contract. So I must admit, it, it's one I find quite difficult. It seems quite a long way off to me. And I wonder whether perspective and age will, will change that for you. But what, what do you think? Do you think this Verstappen could end up being a, an F1 phenomenon that burns, um, burns brightly for... A long time, but not for as long as it could, because he could carry on an F1 until he's forty. But here we're sort of saying he might, he might not sort of make it into into his fourth decade. Yeah, I think he's um, totally serious when he says that he feels Formula One takes up too much time and doesn't allow him enough time to, to pursue his other interests. I, I, I think that's totally genuine. And will he still feel at the end of twenty twenty eight? I I would imagine it'll be even more so by then. Um, that's if we even get to the end of his contract, if he doesn't just stop before then. Um, maybe then after he's been out a year or so, he'll <laughs> still only be, you know, even if he races to the end of his contract, he'll still only be 31 when he stops. So, yeah, that's you've got a few years after that to change your mind and come back again, haven't you? So maybe we'd see something like that. Who knows? Yeah, it would be great to see him in a few other things as well in racing Eric can you see him going and trying to take on Le Mans and things like that clearly he's got a liking for endurance racing we see him doing sim races so that would seem an obvious kind of objective for him yeah in the past they dreamed about him and Jos to drive together in the LMP1 at that time so now there will be a hypercar but I think that will not happen anymore but um, I hope I think if Red Bull allows him and if the calendar allows him that he will do it during his Formula 1 career drive uh, 24 hour of Le Mans I think together with um, uh, maybe Fernando Alonso, Nico Hülkenberg, um, that kind of guys, who has a very good relationship with, because um, it's not one, um, if it's during his Formula One season, it's not a one week off. He wants to win that race as well, of course. So he only wants to join races where he could win. So that's interesting as well. 
after 26 with, with the new rules in Formula One. Um, if Red Bull has a very uh, bad car, I don't see that happening, but can be. If they have a very bad car in that couple of years, then you don't know if he will um, end his career in 28 or maybe earlier because um, he's not the type of guy who will drive in Formula One in the backfield for sure. Yeah, and I think that is an area where perhaps it's a mindset that those who follow might reflect on if they get in quite young obviously drivers are getting younger and younger no more so than Max Verstappen in Formula One so I'll be very interested to see with a long view in a couple of decades time if we see that having an impact and of course how things play out for Max and now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream direct tv satellite free hey Frank a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get direct tv what's little birdie what's it Jimmy the Sparrow it's a figure of speech point is you can stream direct tv over the internet now oh sure Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? What's it, Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Well, Marcus, we mentioned Verstappen broke into F1 at 17, three titles at 26. Wouldn't be out of place to have your F1 debut at 26 or even older, uh, not so long ago. Do you think he's moved the goalposts in terms of what's expected in terms of a career trajectory, which is why, you know, if you're an F2 and you're 21, it's almost felt like you're too old now. Yeah, and he, he pulled up the drawbridge behind him, didn't he? Because the FI instigated a new minimum age of... For, for F1 of 18 after he'd made his debut at 17. But yeah, I mean, that's only a year's different. The, the point still stands that new F1 drivers are younger these days than in the past, but the old ones are older. So um, there's a bigger spread. Um, the, the, the karting careers started younger and younger, and then the young driver junior programs really accelerated things for the chosen ones on those programs. And aside from Red Bull, which Max wasn't a part of, there was Renault, McLaren, Mercedes, all these underwritten driver programs. So you were no longer stuck in one category for years if you didn't have the finance to get into a top team, trying to get the recognition to get in there so you could then prove your worth and be considered for the category above. I don't think Max necessarily was even part of that process. It was, I think it was already well underway by then. But Max was the extreme version of this super early start and instant promotion through the ranks, even missing out ranks because of the, the hugely structured and intense ways early career had been managed by Jos. So, yeah, the goalposts have been moved, but I don't think that's Max's doing particularly. It's interesting, Eric, isn't it? Because it it's very, very significant how Max and Jos kind of approached his progression to Formula One. They very much forced the issue in terms of getting him in with Toro Rosso. They was forcing the issue with getting into the Red Bull as quickly as possible as well as this wider thing of almost trying to manufacture a racing driver. I don't want to suggest that's as a cold thing, but Jos has always talked about he wanted to give Max all of the knowledge and the things that Jos didn't know that meant Jos was a bit of an unfulfilled talent in, in Formula One. Do you think that's a model that is repeatable? Do you think there's, there's eight-year-olds with the right sort of background and the right family and the right people around them to do that? Or do you think this is a very unique kind of moments in time and set of circumstances that allows a driver to be moulded like that. Yeah, never say something is impossible, but the way Jos did it <laughs> together with Max, because uh, Max's uh, mother has some racing genes as well, um, I think it's really difficult to to copy. And I think if you ask Jos now, or if you ask Max if he wants to do it with when he got children later, I think he will say no. And maybe Jos, I think he will not have the energy to do it again. Yes, young ch- uh, child now uh, as well. Um, but it's very unique. And what you said in in fourteen, they started in Formula Three, and then six months later, he was already announced as a Formula One driver. And that was only because Rebel and Helmut Marko believed in it. Um, and it was, and there was a spot there because Mercedes was really interested as well, Toto Wolff with Niki Lauda. But yeah, they couldn't promise him a Formula One seat in 15, which is quite was quite normal for a 17 year old, 16 at that time. Um, but Dr. Marco believed in it, and he gave them the opportunity. And he already uh, a few months later 
after that, he already promised more or less he will be in the Red Bull in 17. But of course, it was already in the beginning of 16 after Kvyat was um, not performing well. So um, that was a bit of luck as well. I don't know if you can call it luck, but that you meet people like that who really believe in you and uh, yeah, give you the opportunity to have that chance. Because, of course, it's Formula 1. There are only 20 seats available. Um, and to be in the sport and 17 years old, I think is really, really difficult. Now it's impossible, like Mark said, but um, also at that time it was really unique. It's an interesting question, isn't it, Mark? Because I know you'll have got into the making of Max as part of the process of writing the book, but I'd certainly agree with what Eric said, that it's very, very hard to imagine that being repeatable, at least not on a massive scale. But we do also know there will be loads of, drivers and people working with drivers who are trying to recreate that so I guess this is an interesting one where you could almost get an effect of a stop and effect there where people are then reaching for something that's very difficult to do do you, do you think it, it, it's sort of paradigm shifting in terms of what people expect about the nurturing of, of those drivers and could that almost be counterproductive if people are expecting their kid to do a Verstappen for want of a better phrase yeah, I don't think it's necessarily that repeatable, but I, I don't don't suppose that'll stop people from trying. But I think you know uh, another crucial part of Max's success um, wasn't just that Jos had been all the way to F one and so sort of you know, knew knew the pitfalls, but he was also operating and had never stopped operating in in the karting world. You know, he, he ran teams in karts and prepared engines, and he was one of the the biggest sort of experts in that field that there there was. So you, you're born into into that. You're born into a life in the karting paddock. You don't know what the outside world is. You only know that this this life. And then once you um, in, inform Jos that you want to race, and Jos says, "Okay, but we're doing it properly." We, you know, you're you sure you're ready for <laughs> to to do it properly. It's not a game. Um, you, you, you had this perfect grounding, you know. You had this perfect scenario where he knew that that, that um, landscape better than the most committed karting dad could could do. You know, somebody that just has, has made their money elsewhere and 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 backs their their kid to you know and helps them with their career. There's, it could take years and years to get to that level of understanding that was already instantly there for Max to use. Yeah, I'd be very interested to see how many people try and really force this <laughs> this uh, approach through, but certainly it's it, it'll change the perspective of of what's of, of what teams expect of what backers expect. So it can't really fail to have an effect in in that regard. Let's move on now, Eric, to the relentless consistency because that is something special. What do you think makes him able to deliver that consistency and how do you think he's managed to almost eliminate the mistakes now? Well, I think it's a combination of maturing as a driver. Um, also, simple as that, having a better car than in previous years. Um, if you see that the, the Honda engine is not blowing up, um, the car is really, really reliable. Um, and then you get into the situation you could have more than 30 races in a row without um, a DNF or without uh, being outside of the points, outside the top 10. So that's really impressive. Um and what is strange, or not strange, but when he makes a mistake, it's not happening that much this year, but like the qualifying in Miami, uh, he had to abort his lap in, in Q3 and then there was not a second lap because Leclerc um, caused the red flag. And then he was only P9. So um, that could be a very bad weekend for him um, because after a week before, Checo Perez's teammate won the race in Baku. It, it was close in the championship and he was starting from pole position. And then he is... Um, in my view, he is um, able to create a, like an, a mode in his head that he wants to crush the whole field. Um, and you see it every week, every weekend where he has a moment or a bad result. A week after he is there, he's, he's more loaded than ever. And that race he won on Sunday, and that was the beginning of the end for Checo this season. Uh, Max won 10 races in a row after that. Um, so from Miami uh, Miami onwards. So um, it's a little bit combination, like I said, because it's maturing as well. You see him now when he's going into turn one, he's not taking all the risk what he did a few years ago, what he had to do because he 
didn't have the car, Mercedes and sometimes Ferrari had. So then you have to take more risks. And if you take more risks, there's there's a bigger chance of a, of a DNF, especially in the start of the race. So um, that helps as well. But I think it's really impressive uh, if you can handle that in a split second that you can sometimes lift or or uh, be outside, uh, be away from the problems. And then, of course, he knows in the back of his head that he is able to to get the guys uh, in front of him in a few uh, few laps after. Yeah, and I think it's particularly relevant because it was yeah, one of the big questions about him from a few years ago, whether he gets to that point. So he's answered a big question very, very well there. Yeah, it's 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 his consistency of raw speed that, that I find so impressive. Not just that he applies his speed more judiciously. And I think, as Eric said, that's part and parcel of just having a super fast car. He's even said a few times, when he's been behind, I know there was no big hurry to get past because I know my car's quick. But it's more the consistency of the speed. And I think we have to give credit to Red Bull for that as well. Also to him, of course. But if you have a car which you're not in tune with, you won't access your your best stuff. We saw in the early parts of both this year and last how when he got the car to do what he wanted to do, he stepped up his level. Um, we see it in other places, Leclerc and Ferrari this year, Hamilton and Mercedes for the last two years. They haven't been able to give their drivers cars which do the things they need them to do to access their best stuff. Occasionally they do, and you see the devastating Leclerc pole lap at Baku or the Hamilton pole in Hungary, but Red Bull have been able to not only deliver a car of huge performance, but also one which can be made to behave the way he needs it to to get these extraordinary levels of personal performance. And the, the personal performance and the car traits are always intertwined. And he, he really has had a fantastic hit rate of amenable cars from Red Bull. And for sure, he's part of making that happen. But a driver alone can't make that happen. The team has to buy into it too. And I, I think the team buy totally into whatever Max tells them and has the ability to incorporate that into development with a very good hit rate. Yeah, which has to connect to the earlier point about his clarity with the feedback he gives. He knows exactly what he's looking for and he knows what he's feeling and experiencing, which perhaps sometimes boils over a bit with how hard he's pushing the team, but you certainly can't uh, argue with with the output. The one thing I do think is quite an interesting question, Eric, is you mentioned that because he's you know got a car that's working well, he can afford to kind of take things very much in control. Whereas a 2021-type season, a little bit different. I mean, if there was a 2021 scenario again with a, with a super close championship fight, I'll be interested to see how he fares. And I think, actually, he will fare probably better. At 21, he was the best driver, no question. But there are a few points where he just thought, he just perhaps forcing the issue a bit too much. Do you think there's still something for him to, it seems ridiculous to say, to prove, but... I'd like to see him in that scenario again. I think he'll thrive, but that's that's perhaps half an unanswered question. Yeah, I think if you're a neutral fan um, and you want excitement, then you need a Max Verstappen who doesn't have the best car. I think we saw that in 21, the last couple of months in 21, it was clear that Mercedes Hamilton had the best car and the best engine. So then he needed to give absolute everything to to um, be able to catch Lewis. And uh, you saw it then in Austin, in Mexico, and then in like Doha, in, in Jedi, he was like, uh, it was Lewis, who was on fire in Brazil. Um, so then you get a, the best fight and then you see the, the, the best drive of Max as well because he has to take, do ex- absolutely everything. Um, but now it's also good, nice to see him, uh, to see him like this, in, absolutely in control. And then he shows as well on a completely other level, in a completely other scenario that he is such a great driver. But... Um, I think what helped this year was also his qualifying laps in Monaco and um, Suzuka, but also Monaco, the last sector, where he was more than two tenths behind Alonso's time and still managed to to get that, that pole position. And that, that are the, the moments this season where you see, okay, when he has to make himself angry, when he sees, okay, maybe I, I don't have the best car on this track on this street circuit then i can show uh what could uh, what kind of driver i am so we still we see still some of that spots but not as much as in 21 but that yeah has also to do with his car and, and the cars of the uh the competitors yeah and i think there will be a point not too far off where things are a little bit more close i'm sure he'll thrive in that situation but it's just it's what you want to see with all of the the great drivers isn't it mark let's move a little bit Mark, let's move on to driving style. As much has been made of his, his driving style, it's ostensibly quite similar to some of the greats who've come before. Pointy front end, the ability to control the rear. Despite that, it's a bit Schumacher-esque, isn't it? So do you think Verstappen has elevated the driver's art in any way with the 
Sometimes we, you know, as we've said, it's not just about driving style, it's about the tolerance, isn't it? What the driver can deal with that can raise the ceiling of the car. That's perhaps the other way to look at it. Yeah, and he can drive in many different styles. He's very open to adapting to what's needed. Um, something that I think is sim racing is further enabled, actually, because he works for hours in preparation of his sim racing. He's got his own team there and is working with other sim racers, so analyzing data and looking at techniques. And he makes the point that, you know, they, even though it's a very different thing because you're acting only on 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 vision um, and not feel and vision, it, the 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 things that you do that make you you quick are, are the same. The, the the inputs are the same. The, the the way you come off the brakes, the way you overlap, braking with the corner, they're the same. They're they're they're, they're replicated very very accurately in sim racing. Um, so I think that's informed them even even more. But I think his favoured natural style is based around his ability to live with a very quick rotation of the car, particularly in the slow corners, so quick that he's still finding lap time from a level of rotation that the other drivers feels like instability of the rear. It's not that he's wrestling with oversteer, but other drivers with that setup would be, and his teammates have been. It's about how early he's feeling that imminent movement of the rear and how he's manipulating the brakes, steering, throttle simultaneously in a very dynamic, adaptive way. So the rear is always seemingly well-behaved. It's only so because of what he's doing, which isn't about reactions or anything like that. It's purely about feel. It's about... So I, I, I don't know about elevating the art. The great ones have always been able to do that, right? Back to the dawn of time. Still on Mostrov like that. Jim Clark, Alain Prost, Schumacher, as you say. But with modern data analysis, maybe he's been able to finesse it and perhaps be more adaptable in how it's applied. Yeah, I think the it's it's that instant, isn't it, when the when the rear is going, you can control it and not feel like you're you're going off. Instability is not an absolute thing; it's in the the eye of the beholder with, with drivers, which clearly Verstappen has a very high tolerance for that. But Eric, what do you make of Max's attitude to the craft of driving? Because sometimes different nuances come over in, in in different languages. So I was wondering if maybe when he's talking about it in Dutch, does he offer a little bit of a different perspective? No, he always, he can adapt quite well on the situation. Sometimes if you listen to the radio, you think, okay, he cannot adapt. But that's just his way to explain that the car is not feeling the way they expected. Um, and then throughout the weekend, you see Red Bull and Verstappen. The combination is a lot of times mentionable to to take the car a little bit back to his uh, routine. But um, yeah, if you speak with him, like oversteer, he can, of course, you don't like oversteer and understeer too much, but um, that's also his um, his thing. He doesn't like understeer at all. He likes to have an oversteering car more than understeering. And if, if, if he's speaking about understeer, then you see he's already a little bit grumpy because he's, um, he's not happy with that and with every other situation he can work with but that's also like his natural talent you see him on a friday during the first practice almost every time every weekend his first lap is quite quick from the um, from the beginning onwards um so that is also the reason he's never doing a track walk because he thinks it's a waste of time uh, he knows the track he, he drove there before uh, normally and he, had, he did it in a simulator so why should you uh, run it or walk it is his um is his point of view so um he's not uh, especially this season and last season he was not always that happy with the car but um especially last season in the beginning with the overweight car but if you see him um, every weekend he wants to have the maximum out of it, the maximum setup. Um, like in Hungary, um, I think after qualifying, they know already he was winning the race because the, the car in the race, the race pace was so good. They saw already on Friday, but then still he wants to have a confident car to attack the corners on Saturday as well. And he missed out of pole position, I think, by three thousandths of a second to Lewis. But still he was complaining like he lost the championship over uh, there that day. So... Um, that says enough as well that he wants to be, uh, he wants to have a perfect car uh, every day, and no better if if there's a race on Sunday. On Saturday, he wants to have the perfect car as well. And if you, as a driver, are not feeling that confident, it doesn't matter if you like one twenty points ahead of everyone in the championship. You want to have a, a good car at every every moment of the of the day of the season. One of the things that I always really like about Max, you don't see it quite so extremely anymore but certainly in the earlier days mark you'll have seen this as well for watching tracks you see the experimentation don't you particularly on 
sort of FP1, he'll be changing what he's doing. In fact, I can remember, in fact, both of us noticed it. We watched that first session he did for Toro Rosso in the car he hadn't driven before at Suzuka way back in 2014. And just straight away, you could see each lap he was doing something a little bit different. Some laps he'd force the entry a bit more. Others he'd try and sort of maximise the mid-corner and give a little bit up at entry and all these things. And, and I think we've been quite fortunate to have see, seen that when it's a little bit more evident in what he's doing. He, I'm sure he does the same thing now, but it's much more refined because he's just got a bigger data bank and he's there straight away. Yeah, I think it's just evidence of, of how much space he's got uh, to, to have that level of awareness of where he's, you know, where he's weak and where he needs to improve. Um, you know, the, the, I think this was one of the one of the things that th- those who'd worked with him um, in the early days had said, you know, you, you, a lot of drivers forget about their their weak points. They they just just keep pressing the button of their their strong points, and he he always seems to have an awareness of where he needs to improve. And I think that's just the the, the headspace that you get when your your talent is so your natural talent is so high. And connected to this, obviously. This ability behind the wheel, the driving style, that skill, that pace has an impact on this. Because, Eric, it's been such a long time since Verstappen has had a teammate that can bring in anything approaching the points Red Bull would ideally want. So he's has he almost made the second driver irrelevant, given nobody seems able to get close to him. And you just end up with this focus on him, quite rightly, because he's the guy who'll get the performance out of the car. And then you just, you're always scratching your head on the second car as to who to put in it. Because even someone like Checo Perez, who's a very capable driver, is really struggling alongside him. Yeah, that's, it's fun, a f- strange thing to say, maybe, but it also showed what kind of season Verstappen has, because uh, Perez is struggling like this. And I remember, uh, at the end of 2020, when he won in Bahrain, everyone was saying it's it's um, it's a miracle and it's not right that Jack Perez doesn't have a seat for next year. Of course, he got the seat of Alex Albon at Rebel. Um, and also in 21, he did a few great things. Also, uh, we all remember the Abu Dhabi race for um, uh, multiple reasons, but also that uh, Perez was holding off Hamilton there for a few laps. Um, so, yeah, for now it's irrelevant because the, the gap with the rest of the field is quite big and you see um, the teams fighting for P2 are different. Now, the last weeks, it's more or less McLaren. But if the field is going to be closer, which normally will be the case the next couple of years, we all, always see that in history, then you need a number two to take away some points from the rest, um, at least. So um, that can be interesting. And the gap is so big now that you also are wondering and of course we don't know that for sure if the rebel is such a great car of course it's a good car a great car but if it's that great as we always thought this season because Perez is like you said that is it's not a bad driver but now in a lot of weeks he's on the midfield um so uh, of course he's struggling with the car maybe with himself as well but um, it's very interesting to see what would happen if Verstappen, for example, would drive the McLaren or Norris the Red Bull. But yeah, that's also uh, uh, that's Formula One. We never would know that. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's true. The point about we're not seeing Perez at his best because his his head's been so <laughs> damaged by this uh, constant, you know savage pace that he's being compared to so it's it's had an impact on his own psyche i'm sure um but i also say although perez is a good driver he's, he's i don't i wouldn't have ever put him at the the, the top end of the, the the category uh you know of, of, of world-class drivers just a pretty good one um and from what christian horner was saying at qatar on tv um last week He's having similar thoughts. He's he's pointing out the quality of the driver lineup at McLaren, the quality of the driver lineup at Mercedes, and he's he's made the, he made the point that Eric just has that well that's not such a big thing at the moment because we've got a big margin. But you know if those guys have got good um, cars next year, it's gonna it's gonna matter. Now you you put the Ferrari guys into that mix as well. So you know he clearly thinks that. Ferrari, Mercedes, McLaren all have a better lineup uh, of drivers, or, or not not better than than Max, obviously, but better than Checo. And you know, it, it, it would be hard to uh, argue with that. Do you think, Eric, that Max would benefit from? 
perhaps embracing a stronger teammate. It's not that he's stopped others coming in or anything, but he, he clearly, even at moments where sort of he's felt Checo's overstepped a bit, he hasn't been afraid of saying it. And he doesn't really need to worry about Perez ultimately because he's absolutely got his number. But cause there, there could be a point in a close championship fight, as you said, when he really needs that second driver. So do you think that's an area where where Max should almost push for a, for a little bit more? Or do you think he's quite happy having having it as it is and saying, well, I'll, I'll do the heavy lifting? Yeah, you can look at it both sides. You can see if the, if their teammates so close to each other, uh, they can fight each other, they can touch each other, like we said, uh, saw with Hamilton and Russell in, in Qatar. Um, and you can see it like this. If, if you have a number two who is a clear number two, you don't have, uh, as a team principal, you don't have that uh, fear. Um, but as a driver as well, I can imagine if you have a second driver or, or a colleague driver who is more, close to you he can help you um developing the car maybe give you a little bit a push as well uh, i don't think verstappen needs that because you see how his mindset is also in this situation but um still i think it's more from the team um and maybe for verstappen as well uh, if you ask him now i think he, he would say he, he would have mind who was next to him he cannot say something else but maybe if you ask him uh off the record or if you are can can see in his head. I I, w- I wouldn't say he was. He would be surprised if if Perez w- was going to be replaced, and I, I I won't think he would cry about it. Um, that's how how life works in Formula One, and you saw it as well at the beginning of the season when Perez was on the um, winning the race in Jeddah and Baku. Um, Verstappen didn't say it, but you felt that he was not happy with the way Perez was acting and behaving and uh, saying he was going to to fight for the for the championship and also in the team and then you saw how the weeks after evolved and of course um there changed something last year that's uh, quite obvious uh, in Abu Dhabi he said uh, after the first world title he said that Checo is a legend the were the words of Verstappen I won't think he would say that a sentence again um because I think that changed a lot in their in their relationship as well in uh, 2022. Yeah, that's a good point actually about the fact it has evolved and changed a little bit and that perhaps does doesn't mean they might look elsewhere. Obviously the main challenge is finding someone in that sweet spot because Perez looked on paper like he could be that one. We knew he wasn't going to be as fast, but sort of thinking that magic three tenths behind, but finding that's very, very difficult. So this is the kind of headache that teams have when they have a megastar like Verstappen. It's not the first time it's happened, but maybe it's more extreme. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Mark, it's not unusual for a driver of a Stappen standing to do everything he can to get the team behind him. So how would you characterise his approach overall in terms of galvanising that team, pushing it, the way he communicates with his race engineer as well? Do you think that's something we haven't seen in exactly this form before? Certainly his, his, en- his relationship with um, his en- engineer, um, Giampiero Lambiasi, or GP as he's known, is very distinctive, isn't it? And uh, they really both give give each other a lot of shit. Um, but it, you know, it's such a strong uh, relationship. It doesn't it doesn't matter. It, it just you know it just washes over them that 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 um, sort of combat of um, heat, I guess you'd call it. Um, it's just part of it's just part and parcel of what they do, and they they don't seem to mind. So I don't see why anybody else should. Um, 
But I think in terms of galvanizing a team, I don't think he's needed to do really. It hasn't been a deliberate strategy. It hasn't needed to be. He's he's wowed the team so much. And by the team, I'm talking the wider Red Bull family, you know, Helmut Marko right from the start. That his performance just had the whole enterprise gravitating towards him. He isn't there on the same terms as anyone else has been. Um, even Verstappen, you know, as even uh, Vettel. Um, the, the, the Verstappens have sort of almost granted Red Bull the favour of his skill. You know, that's, that's the dynamic. And I don't think he's needed to try to get alliances to ensure he gets the best of everything, though Jos maybe tried a bit of that at Toro Rosso in the first year. He just gets that anyway. He delivers and he expects the same in return. So that's different to how some drivers in history have operated, like Prost or Lauda, for example. But it's quite similar to how Schumacher was in his ex- with his extraordinary performance automatically focuses everyone upon him. But in Max's case, without the stipulation of a, a supportive teammate, which uh, Michael was always you know, very um, active about. Um, I think I, I agree with Eric. I think Max is very relaxed about the identity of his teammates. Um, Red Bull does prefer a policy of a megastar and a good support, um, and it shied away from the two megastars approach, and that's something Christian Horner talked about as recently as last weekend in Qatar when he was being asked about Perez's performance. I've asked Helmut Marko about it as well, and he said, in his opinion, there are only two drivers who could go head-to-head with Max in the same team without being destroyed mentally, and he considered those to be Alonso and Hamilton. But he said that that... that Pairing either of them with Max would tear the team apart. And so, of course, they've got no desire to do that. And they're, they're perfectly happy that they've got the best of the trio anyway. And, and of course, someone with many more years of potentially available service than those two. So I, I don't think Max is doing anything deliberately as a strategy, but the team has formed its way of operating around his talents. Yeah, which big teams do people tend to get the cause and effect almost the wrong way around. They think that a team just decides they're going to support someone and then makes everything for them. That's not what happens. The the strongest driver creates that just through their sheer bludgeoning performance, if you like. But I'm interested to get your take, Eric, on his relationship with GP and the way of communicating, because it is very direct. And I've heard people suggest that there's a certain Dutchness to it, if you like, in terms of that way of, of, uh, of um, communicating. Do you think that that sort of culturally accurate is that is that a particularly dutch thing or is that just <laughs> something non-dutch people say to try and explain something now we can be very direct um but of course you can be very direct if you have such a good relationship between those two if you see them laughing after a race or after a session you know okay they can be quite uh tense and gp is not a guy who uh, he can receive well, but he can. Uh, Max has to receive sometimes as well. Sometimes he gives him uh, something back as well. I think that's healthy as well. That is not only coming from the driver. Um, but if you see them after a session, I spoke with GP after the sprint in um, Qatar as well, and then he is laughing about it a bit. Like we had the practice session there for ten minutes because of the Pirelli uh, thing going on, the tire thing going on the track there, and GP said. To stop it on the radio after his last lap, okay, maybe you can learn something as well from lap six to sixteen, and then Verstappen has to had to ask why or what what do you want me to do? So then GP said, I have to explain him everything because he wants to know why he has to do something. I cannot just say do this without an explanation. So uh, that's quite funny sometimes as well. But I think they still have a very uh, good relationship. And um, also about the rebel thing, it's of course it's quite normal as well that. If you sign a guy uh, beginning before the season 2022, so after the first world title, you give him a contract till 28, um, that you give him a big say in the team as well. And he works with the same engineers for uh, multiple years now, four or five, the same engineers. Um, And what you feel in Red Bull as well, that they kind of like the loyalty of Max and his manager and his father, um, like in the year 17, 18, when it was not going that well, um, remember the the engine thing with Renault, which was not going that that well with Rebel and Renault that relationship, and and that they still stayed at the team, uh, which was not that hundred percent sure at that time. So um, I think that reward they get it back now, that loyalty, um, and now every, everyone is happy in the team. Yeah, and it's worth reminding people of that period actually, because I think 
I still hear sometimes people say, well, he's got to prove he can do it in a car that's not the best car. So, well, he did in that period. He had the best part of five seasons with Red Bull when it wasn't a championship contender and just the odd win here and there. And he, he was obviously still shaping himself as a driver, but he did a phenomenally good job there as well. So I think it's important not to forget that uh, that period from 16 to, uh, to 20. But perhaps the final one we should talk about, Eric, is... The fact that Verstappen has brought this very different kind of fan support, the the famous Orange Army, is that a uniquely Dutch thing, do you think? And what does it say about Max that he's caught the imagination? We we see so many of these circuits where you get grandstands taken over by the uh, by the Orange Army. Yeah, it's a, it's a well, well, I don't know, only Dutch thing, but uh, you saw it with the big football championships. And like I said at the beginning, um, we missed out of a few big competitions, a big tournaments with the football team. So that helped him as well. Um, but as well as personality and his racecraft talent, so that helped as well. But now I'm still surprised that when I'm in the plane to, for example, Singapore or something, that the plane is full with Verstappen fans and they're already on Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, so days before the actual race week and they are dressed in their Red Bull or Verstappen outfit. I hope they have more outfits with them and not walking in the same outfit every day. But um, it's like, it's, it's amazed me as well. And also with this new merchandise and people are buying it. So everyone is um, so Verstappen-minded. And of course, there are a lot of Formula actual Formula 1 fans in the Netherlands, but there's also a, a group... Uh, when Max has a DNF, which is not happening that much nowadays, but when he has DNF, they turn off the television. Um, so th- you have that kind of group as well, but also a very big Formula One group. And I think what helps as well is that Verstappen is down to a normal guy in uh, how people see him, but also that Formula One is quite a funny sport because it's so far from everyone's mind and, and it's a far from the bed show because at the football stadium you can go you can buy a ticket and you go to the football stadium uh, to a to a league game in somewhere next to your home for a formula 1 you have to travel you have to uh, you can see the cars but you have no if you if, if it's the first time at the racetrack you have no um nothing in your head how it should be so it's the vibe the whole formula 1 circus they want to to um to see and to feel so that helps as well but um yeah, at first, maybe in 15, 16, 17 people in the Netherlands say some people, some criticizing people say it's a hype, the Verstappen mania. But now we are in 23 and it's still going on. So, um, yeah, that's that's fascinating to see still. And the amazing thing is he doesn't seem to have made much effort to cultivate it. I don't mean that he doesn't care or anything, but some put a lot of effort into how they present themselves and encouraging fans. But he just seems to do his thing and then he's got all this support behind him. Does that reflect how it's been in the Netherlands? Yeah, yeah. It's not like him. He is uh, cultivating, I think, the good word. He, he likes it and he, he he is sometimes surprised that people are going to Spa Francorchamps and sit in the rain for three days. I think he would not do that for someone else. So um, uh, he's quite surprised about that, happily surprised that the people are there for him and he likes it, but he's not. it's not taking away his uh, momentum. And also in the paddock, I think Mark and you had as well, you can say that better than me, but like 10, 20 years ago, you didn't have so much VIPs in the paddock and people want to to touch you, uh, not us, but the drivers, but touch you and, and talk with you and uh, have some attention of you because they, they think maybe, okay, I paid for a very expensive ticket. Now I it's my um, duty to to have a picture with Max Verstappen. Um, but also that, he's, he's always very good with young fans, with kids. He's always uh, makes some time for a picture. But also that he knows, okay, now I have to, uh, to move on because otherwise I'm too late for my meeting. So um, he sees the stands, he likes it, he sees the Orange Army, but he also can... Uh, when the helmet is on, he can focus, fully focus and not um, uh, get away of with this. So that I think that's a very healthy and good ma- mindset as well. I quite enjoyed the fact that in Qatar on the Thursday, when he had a, his little media session with a group of us there, and for some reason it got onto the topic of the there's some sports person of the year award or sports group of the year. He, he basically just, it's like the equivalent in the UK of the BBC sports personality of the year or something. And Max just said, oh, I don't know why we have to have these awards. Can't we just appreciate what everyone does? It's rubbish. Yeah. I, I, actually, um, I actually quite like that because that that seems... Normally, the standard thing is to say, oh, it's great because it's, uh, it's great to have all that support. But I like the fact he was happy to just say, no, this is stupid. The funny thing was he, he didn't even get a question about that sports uh, prize. 
it's uh, the sports awards. It was about uh, the comparison with other big uh, drivers in the in the past or big Dutch sportsmen. But then he, he was talking out of himself about that um, that prize giving and and like he was on a roll for one or two minutes. And then I made a, made a joke about him that that for sure he he, he was not winning this year because after this uh, couple of quotes. And then he was going on as well. And then the day after on Friday morning, his father said, yeah, he was talking about it again in the hotel this morning. So <laughs> he can be very, very um, um, yeah. It can be very have a high heartbeat about it, but I think that's he, he meant it, and I think it's a it's a great example that he has a lot of respect for other sportsmen as well, and that he doesn't think actually doesn't think that he he deserved the prize every year because he already won for three, uh, three years earlier. Yeah, I like his outlook on that. It shows again; it's just he's not in it for the external glory, uh, Shui. So I guess Mark on this topic, although we haven't seen. Dutch fans like this before. I guess this is a bit of a mark of of the drivers who are achieving greatness because we only really get it for for these. I mean, I guess there's a couple of sort of drivers who didn't win championships who inspired such devotion. But when you think of any of those who really transformed and brought a whole nation to attending Grand Prix, if you like, Michael Schumacher did it. Obviously, the explosion of interest in Germany was was down to him. Senna in Brazil and some of the Brazilians that came before as well actually there's there's multiple cases there but it is quite rare to have such a profound impact and I guess this isn't something where he's doing something completely different but it's it's almost part and parcel of being one of these drivers who almost transcends their own sport. Yeah and I think um, with Max it's 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 spread out uh, uh, well beyond just you know Holland and Belgium you see it. You see it everywhere. Any anywhere you go, there's this great big section of orange in the crowd. And I think beyond even that, that Schumacher achieved, um, he's it's just spread so far, so wide. I think that, that that's unique. Yeah, and it, it's very very noticeable. If ever you're in a city where there's a Grand Prix, you'll always see. As, as mentioned, people clad in the uh, in the orange and very obvious for Stappen fans, which is uh, great to see. You want to see fans getting behind drivers. Well, hopefully we've come up with some kind of deeper understanding of, of Max Verstappen. I don't think there's much point in debating whether he's a great, because he clearly is. But this is the really fascinating question. Is he somebody who's really changing F1? And I think, I guess it's a concluding thing, D- does everyone feel that he is a driver that, that's raising the bar and is going to, have just this huge impact on the trajectory of the evolution of drivers. What do you think, Eric? Is is he changing the game? Yes, I think on multiple things, but also we talked about, is it, can you copy it? I think that's so hard to see because it's such a unique process with his father, former, former Formula One driver, the talent of Verstappen, the Max Verstappen himself, the way they, they reach Formula One. Um, so yeah, he's raising the bar on, on multiple things, but also uh, you have to bear in mind that talents are not born like talents like this are not born every year. So um, it's in every sport. So it's not that it's also if you read a newspaper article now with a young car t- talent in in Holland, it's always I want to be the new Max Verstappen. Um, and then maybe you have parents who say, okay, you are so good, you will be the new Max Verstappen. But it takes. Yeah, it's almost impossible. And I think he's raising the bar on the sport, but also raising the bar, Formula One bar in the Netherlands. And I think we will never see this again in our country. But it's I think it's very difficult to see this again in the whole sport as well. Um, but yeah, let's enjoy it while it lasts. So, uh, of course, you get a lot of people now who say it's getting boring. And I can, I can imagine that at some point. But also, I think that we have to think, okay... Uh, let's em- embrace it as well because it's quite unique what we are uh, seeing um, these times. And how about you, Mark? Do you think he is one of those drivers who's not just being phenomenally successful but having a redefining effect? There's maybe, I don't know, 10, 12 drivers in World Championship history who've really, I think, pushed the game on with their success and the way they, they do things. Is he in that conversation now? Oh, yeah, totally. Um, totally in, in the same way that Hamilton was or Schumacher was or Senna was. Um you know, gone right away back, Fangio and Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart, you know, all, the, all those guys that d- d- define their era. Um, he's defining his. It, there's no, no, no question about that. Um, he's um, definitely moving the game on, um, but I think anybody at the top of this, 
sport at this time, whoever it would be, would be moving the game on just because the the, the natural increase in knowledge, of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, as the phrase goes, um, has enabled teams to have deeper understanding and they're able to analyze performances more closely. So just like with, you know, you, you see in athletics, you know, better understanding of diet and training and the records complete, continue to fall. It does, does it mean that these athletes are more talented than the ones of, of, of 30, 40, 50 years ago or more? No, I don't think it means that. It, it just means that when you have a talent of that level, and you give them better resources, then yes, the the performance will be will be greater. Uh, so I think it's it, it's that, and then I think that's um, where Max is, and he's a, a phenomenal talent, and he's just absolutely maximising the opportunities that he that he has, um, which he has been a big part in um, creating. Yeah, and it's been a great privilege to be able to follow it up close. A fascinating driver. I know some will be finding it a bit repetitive. And as I say, sometimes excellence can make sport seem very boring, but it is quite brilliant. And while everyone wants to see wheel-to-wheel battles for the win every week, that's the ideal. But sometimes you've got to just appreciate what's going on and applaud it. He's a quite incredible driver. So thanks very much to Mark and to Eric Van Haren for joining us to give their insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there on Formula One. Check out our other podcasts, including Bring Back V10s and the Race F1 Tech Show with Gary Anderson. Also have a look at our YouTube channel. We'll shortly be heading off towards Austin. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a fifteen hundred dollar first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.